that left me now with a choice to turn in my friends or to be a part of this horrible crime. And I'm not going to be a part of this horrible crime. The only way to not be a part of the horrible crime is to discover the truth and to pursue it. Horizontal protection is the only way to ensure that all those who report wrongdoings in the interest of the public do not suffer from any sort of retaliation. They are attacking journalists. Uh, they use it to attack uh, the whistleblowers. You know, the people who should be in prison usually get promoted, and the people who blow the whistles go to prison. We have it upside down. Hello and welcome to my podcast, Counter Accounts. I am Samar Riaz and thank you for your interest in my show. In this podcast, I invite whistleblowers, investigative journalists, officials from the public, private and NGO sectors, and different researchers and scientists who have either dealt with or confronted the dominant narratives in our society. So let's hear their stories. Hello again, and a special welcome to those joining us for the first time. I want to start this episode with a quote from Albert Einstein to help us get curious before we dive into a very hard topic today. He once said, and I'm quoting here, the important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing. One cannot help but be in awe when contemplating the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of the mystery every day. End quote. I don't know about you, but I feel like over the last few years, we have become increasingly polarized. And we seem to be more interested in preserving loyalty to our own tribe instead of curiously listening to different views and engaging in an open-minded and respectful exchange. Cancel culture and intolerance towards people with different viewpoints are definitely on the rise. We can see that in politics, science, economics, academia, and many other areas of our society. Maybe it's time we allow ourselves to listen and have a more balanced view of the complex issues that we are facing. Maybe it's time we engage with those who disagree with us in a respectful manner. We don't have to agree with them on everything they say, but engaging in discourse and allowing ourselves to listen to the counter-accounts can help us make better decisions. This is particularly true in the field of science. Science has been progressing because some scientists didn't follow the crowd and challenge the existing assumptions and scientific consensus again and again often against great opposition and at personal expense. Good scientists go where the research leads them and follow their findings, sometimes to unexpected places. That's what happened to my today's guest. She's one of those scientists who changed her position when presented with new scientific evidence, and it cost her, as we will discuss later on. She was once, in her own words, 
and I'm quoting here, adopted by the environmental advocacy groups and treated like a rock star, flown all over the place to meet with politicians, end quote. Until her research led her to a less alarmist message. Instead of panic, fear, and hysteria, she started encouraging a more balanced view based on high-quality scientific inquiry and depoliticizing of science in climate change and public policy discourse. As a result, she has been cancelled and marginalized, and her personal and professional reputation has been attacked. But, as you will hear in this discussion, she's not giving up. Instead of fear, she has a message of hope, particularly for young people. Dr. Judith Curry is president and co-founder of Climate Forecast Applications Network, also called CFAN. She is Professor Emerita at the Georgia Institute of Technology, where she served as Chair of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences for 13 years. Her expertise is in the climate dynamics, extreme weather and predictions. She's a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, American Meteorological Society, and the American Geophysical Union. She's a recipient of various recognitions, including the Henry J. Houghton Research Award. There's no doubt that Judith is a leading global thinker on climate change. She is frequently called upon to give U.S. congressional testimony and serve as an expert witness on matters related to weather and climate. Judith's latest book, which I highly recommend, is called Climate Uncertainty and Risk, Rethinking Our Response, that delves deep into the climate change problem, the risks we are facing and how we can respond. Actively engaged at the intersection of science and public policy, she has served on the NASA Advisory Council Earth Science Subcommittee, the DOE Biological and Environmental Research Advisory Council, and the National Academies Climate Research Committee and the Space Studies Board. It's good to have you here, Judith. Thank you and welcome to the show. So from what I have read and I have known about your story, you went from a climate change rock star scientist to someone accused of being a climate change denier. I mean, you know, people can read up all the details of your journey in, in your book, but, but in your own words, what made you change your mind? And maybe you can explain what part of, you know, like climate gate played in that. Okay, in 2005, I inadvertently got tossed into the public debate on climate change. Um, I was co-author on a paper that found that the percentage of Category 4 and 5 hurricanes had doubled globally since 1970. And by some weird fluke of fate, the paper was published two weeks after Hurricane Katrina had destroyed New Orleans. Now, the paper wasn't about global warming. I mean, our main message was that, look, you're rebuilding New Orleans. You need to maybe be prepared for a Category 4 or 5 hurricane, not just a Category 3. But in spite of that message, the whole dialogue turned to global warming. And our paper and Hurricane Katrina became a focusing event for the whole global warming debate. I mean, prior to that, people said one, two, three degrees warming, who cares? 
But if one degree of warming could cause much worse hurricanes, well, all of a sudden people were going to start to care. So, you know, we got tossed into the public debate and made a decision at that point that, you know, I was somewhat critical of the IPCC before, you know, they're not dealing with uncertainty sufficiently, things like that. But I thought that it was a responsible thing to do in my public statements to support the IPCC. And so I did. Sorry to interrupt you here, but would you mind explaining a bit more about what IPCC is and why it is important in your story? Oh, got it. Okay, so this is the UN Climate Assessment Group. They write periodic assessment reports, and these reports are what provide the scientific foundations for all these climate change treaties. Okay, so it's the IPCC stands for Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They're generally regarded as the authority on all things climate. Um, so I thought it was responsible to support what they were doing. Um, I still had nagging concerns about they were overconfident and you know not being careful enough about uncertainty. And I was also concerned about the political activities of some of the IPCC principles that I thought weren't suitable. But nevertheless, I thought it was the right thing to do. Well, all this changed in November of 2009 with the unauthorized release of the so-called climate gate emails. Somebody had hacked into the University of East Anglia um, computers and got the emails of all sorts of IPCC authors. And... I went through these in great detail, and it revealed all sorts of scientific skullduggery, um, avoiding the, trying to sabotage anybody who disagreed with them, trying to get journal editors fired if they let through a skeptical paper, avoiding Freedom of Information Act requests to avoid giving their data to people that they thought might criticize them, and on and on it goes. And my reaction to this was, okay, well, this reveals the sausage making <laughs> that goes into the IPCC consensus, and I don't like it. Yep. So, I, so I started speaking out publicly about the need for, you know, like climate scientists need to be paid better. We need to make all of our data available, make our methods transparent. Okay, we need to be honest about uncertainty. We need to be respectful of people who disagree with us. And you, know, you might think that those are motherhood and apple pie statements, but it was a, a, the climate establishment, if you will, was intensely angry with me. Who am I to speak up? Who am I to criticize? And why is she getting all this attention? She doesn't deserve it. Right. Um, Nevertheless, I got some significant amount of attention, and I was trying to get my message out there. And, you know, the, there was quite a bit of, I did quite a large number of interviews. And in 2010, I started my own blog called Climate Etc. It's at judithcurry.com. And I launched my blog with a series on climate science and the uncertainty monster. And this became a big theme of what 
you know, I was going to be working on. And through my blog, I developed this large network of people from all over the world, from many different fields, both academic, professional, and just interested people. And we developed this network, um, you know, just exploring all the hard issues, the things that the politicians and the IPCC wanted to sweep under the rug. Yeah. You know, we started digging into all of this. Cool. And, you know, the climate establishment that, oh my gosh, what do we do with her? And then somebody came up with the idea, well, let's just call her a denier and then we can dismiss her. So you then you see all the other crimes. So <laughs> when, when you say the climate establishment, who are we actually talking about here? Yeah, we're talking about UN people. We're talking right. about the IPCC authors. We're talking about influential scientists who have seats at the big tables in terms of journal editors, presidents right. of professional societies, people yeah. who have access to politicians. So it's it's the big shots. Sure. Okay. Um, so 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 they didn't like it. So someone came up with the idea. Well, let's just dismiss her as a denier throw her into that other camp. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have to worry about her anymore. And how was the media's response? Did you get support from the mainstream media? I guess social media was still in its early days back then. So how was the response, both on the social media networks and the mainstream media? Okay, well, you know, circa 2009-2010, blogs were the big deal. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this was before Twitter and Facebook and all that. Um, had really come into prominence. So blogs were a big deal. Um, in the year following Climate Gate, I got a lot of attention from the mainstream media. Right. Okay. So, but, but then um, after about a year of that, then, you know, this whole denier label started to stick and it was very convenient. And then I got, you know, was attacked from all sorts of directions and certain mainstream media outlets um, got the message that interviewing me was going to be unpopular with their readership. And so that I sort of, the mainstream media lost interest in me, but I, I have no particular interest in being, you know, a, a, a media person. I do like public engagement though. So, so the blog was just perfect. You know, I'm talking to a range of people across the spectrum yeah. uh, with many different perspectives, and it was a fascinating dialogue. I was, you know, a lot of my blog posts got referenced in academic journal articles, and I felt like I was influencing, you know, the debate yeah. in a quiet way. Yeah. Uh, but mostly I was just really excited about my new network of online friends, so to speak, you know, collaborating with them and working on interesting stories and things like that. So, yeah. I mean, I was in a happy place. Like, well, I'm doing this. Yeah. yeah. But, however, yeah, however, I mean, I had, I was, uh, I was chairman of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech at the time. Um, the people in the universities were not happy with me. And, you know, I had to just rethink what I should be doing here. And I don't know if I'm jumping ahead to where you want to be in the story. <laughs> so, so when you say not happy, how, how, how did they demonstrate that they're not happy? Or how did you feel? Uh, how, how did you interpret that they are not happy? Did they? Uh, okay. Well, I had 
there were several activists, climate activists, faculty members in my department. And one was even the stepdaughter of the dean. Right. <laughs> so he got a very clear message of all this. Um, the provost and the president didn't like this uncertainty message. They didn't like the adverse publicity that I was getting in the mainstream media. At the same time, the alumni, a lot of the alumni just loved what I was doing. I mean, after all, you know, Georgia is a red state, a conservative state politically. So I was popular with the alumni. So I was protected a little bit because of the alumni, but it was very clear. They wanted me to step down as chair. Um, I did that. Um, I was assigned a little tiny office. I wasn't assigned to teach. I wasn't assigned to serve on committees. I was completely marginalized. Sure. Okay. Sure. Completely marginalized. And I, <clears throat> I saw the writing on the academic wall. Let's talk about your fascinating book, the latest book that you've written called Climate Uncertainty and Risk, Rethinking Our Response which I highly recommend if you want to have a balanced view of climate change and public policy discourse. Now, why did you write such a comprehensive book on the climate debate? And can you give some examples of some of the assumptions of the dominant narrative of climate change emergencies that you disagree with and why? Okay, well, spring of 2020, <laughs> in the grip of COVID, I received an email from Anthem Press, um, which is an academic press, soliciting me to write a book for their new sustainability series. You know, I get messages like this from, you know, book publishers not infrequently, but this particular one clicked and the timing was right. I said, look, COVID, we're going to be locked down for ages. If I'm ever going to write a book, now is the time to do it. I mean, little did I know that <laughs> you know, all this lockdown and everything would extend for so for yeah. several years. Um, so, and I said, well, I have so much material that I've already written on my blog. Surely I've written everything that I could possibly say. All I have to do is select and condense a bit. Well, that turned out to be a joke. It turned out to be quite a big job to synthesize and assess all of this material and develop a logical narrative through this whole crazy complex subject and keep it to around 100,000 words. Um, and again, this is an academic press, so it has to pass muster with peer, re peer reviewers, and I have to have extensive documentation in the footnotes. So um, I thought it was going to be easier to write than it was. But nevertheless, from start to finish, it took me two years uh, to complete the book. And I was fairly busy with other things during that period. So it wasn't even two years full-time writing. Um, but I will say I burned a, a few brain cells writing that book. It was really intense. It was uh, an unrepeatable, stimulating experience, but it's sort of exhausting when I look back on it. Yeah. But, you know, the comprehensiveness is just the way I've been thinking and evolving. And you can see threads and all of this in my, my blog yep. that I started in 2010. For somebody who's been following my blog from the beginning, there's not too many surprises in the book. So when reading your book, I can see why you are covering the domains of politics, science, philosophy, and sociology, and how they are important in your story. 
So let's get back to the second part of my earlier question, which is what are the assumptions of the dominant narrative that you have challenged and why is it important? Well, there are so many hidden assumptions. Okay, that the 1992 UN treaty is to avoid dangerous anthropogenic climate change associated with, you know, fossil fuel emissions. I mean, that's basic, and this was in 1992. Okay, think about all, you know, first off, there wasn't even any, there wasn't very much warming at that point and certainly couldn't attribute it <laughs> to fossil fuel emissions. Um, there's a hidden assumption in there that warming is dangerous. Over most of human history, the climate optimums have been from warm periods. You know, so why are we thinking climate change is um, dangerous? Um, there's an implied assumption that we need to provide a stable climate to the current and future inhabitants when, they're, when climate has always been unstable over the 4.6 billion years of the Earth's history. Um, you know, there are so many hidden assumptions here um, that rapidly transitioning from away from fossil fuels and replacing it with wind and solar will provide, you know, adequate energy supplies and make us all better off. I don't think so. That climate models um, actually provide useful predictions while well, they don't. I mean, on and on it goes. I mean, there's just so many hidden assumptions or explicitly stated assumptions that should be challenged that everyone just sweeps under the rug. So, you know, I bring these out into the open and say, look, <laughs> this is part of, of the information. The fact that we don't know, the fact that people disagree, this is part of the information that be, should be used by policymakers in, in decision-making. Let's talk about your interaction with the politicians and the policymakers. You have been to a few U.S. Congress meetings have, and have testified on a few occasions. Now that they know that there is a valid challenge to the dominant narrative, are they paying attention to you now? Well, when I, you know, I've, I've testified before U.S. Congress, I think, 13 times since maybe 2007. Um, in the early days, I was invited by the Democrats. Right. And in, more recently, I've been invited by the Republicans. Right. And whenever you testify, you're invited by well, one party or the other, and the, the other party, you know, views you as an adversary. You know, without listening to what you have to say, they're trying to take you down. So um, the actual hearings, I don't think are much value, but I think my written testimonies right. have been circulated fairly widely and continue to be referred to. I think these are very useful documents um, they have out there influencing the broader public debate, you know, in industry, local governments, and so on. So the hearings themselves are political theater, but I think the written testimonies live well beyond the actual hearings. As we've discussed before, I am British. I've lived in the UK for many years, and now I live in Germany. And in both countries, what I've seen is that the mainstream media is covering the dominant narrative, including 
the, the narrative on the climate change, like 24-7. Basically, it's everywhere. But you know, any challenge to that dominant narrative, you have to actively search for it. It is not covered in the mainstream media to a degree that can give us a balanced view. And to be honest, most people don't even have the time or energy to hear anything other than that dominant narrative because it takes time and effort. Now, in both the UK and Germany, there's a growing movement of young people being bombarded with the message of no hope by the mainstream media. I mean, they really believe that they are the last generation. So they're desperate and fearful. Some of them are involved in drastic protests like gluing themselves to the roads and airport runways. Some of them are destroying cultural artifacts like precious paintings and buildings. In fact, some of them end up having criminal records, you know, which will obviously impact their future part prospects. So what's your message to these young people? Well, my message is that they are living in the best possible time that humans have ever had on Earth. Okay, life expectancy has increased substantially. We're able to support 8 billion people who live in much less poverty overall than even 50 years ago. Um, agriculture productivity has skyrocketed. Deaths from extreme weather and climate events have dropped by two orders of magnitude over the last 100 years. I mean, what's not to like? Um, so so th there's been, they say, oh, well, there's bad weather. There was a heat wave. There was a fire. There was a hurricane. Well, these have happened <laughs> forever. And what's going on in the 21st century is relatively tame compared to previous periods. More recently, the 1930s, the end of the Little Ice Age um, was very bad, the early 1800s. Then you go back to like maybe the 16th century in Europe, I mean, with massive famines and they were burning witches because they, uh, drowning witches actually, because they were blaming the bad weather on them. I mean, th these were horrible times. And right now we're living in a pretty good period. And if we don't screw things up, you know, we can continue this ever growing prosperity and safety and security. Um, so what these kids are suffering from is what I call pre-traumatic stress syndrome. They're not responding to what's happening right now. They're responding to what they think is going to happen. And it's, it's really the apocalyptic rhetoric starting from the UN officials, most recently global boiling, <laughs> yep. code red, you know, extinction, this is the last chance, and on and on it goes which then triples down to national level politicians. And then you've got all these advocacy groups like Extinction Rebellion that are funded by billionaire green activists um, who are just scaring the bejesus out of the kids. And they get it on social media. And worse yet, they even get it in the schools. Um, you know, So they're getting this message of relentless doom. And it's also a cynical political ploy to use children as political tools to educate them this way so they'll, well, not only will they grow up to be activists, but they'll also convince their parents to be concerned and to be activists. So it's just a shameless, reprehensible brainwashing of the kids, all because the politicians have this misguided idea 
that we need global collective action to eliminate fossil fuels immediately. Even if we were successful, it's not going to really change the climate in any meaningful or useful way. So it's just all a big load of dangerous nonsense. And, you know, I'm hoping my book (laughs) will help people understand what's really going on, both in the climate dimension and also the socio-political dimension. Now, let's talk about those on the opposite side of the spectrum who are so frustrated with climate alarmism that they refuse to engage in any discussion whatsoever about climate change and consider it all a hoax. How do you suggest we engage them? I was particularly fascinated by the Goldilocks dilemma that you mentioned in your book, so it might be helpful to unpack this here. And how should we engage with people on both ends of the spectrum? Okay, well, first off, stop talking about climate change. Right. You're never going to get the two sides, you know, with different sets of facts, both of which are deeply uncertain. Neither side is going to convince the other side that their set of facts is any better. So, you know, just change the discussion. You know, forget the assumptions. Forget finding the problem. Let's talk about policies and solutions. Doesn't everybody want better water management so we have fewer floods and we have reservoirs that save all that excess water for when we need it? Now, who's going to disagree with that? Doesn't everybody agree that we should do more research and development into energy technologies so maybe in the future we have more abundant, more you know, reliable and cheaper energy in the future that also happens to be cleaner. Who's going to argue with that? Um, You know, so there's lots of things that people can agree on in terms of infrastructure and environmental policy and things like that, that you can accomplish if you don't, if you avoid, you know, the whole politics of the climate change issue, which has just become toxic. Um, you know, the natural course of events, you know, forget the climate change issue. We would probably be transitioning slowly away from fossil fuels anyways. I mean, there's issues with fossil fuels and we can imagine better solutions and just let, you know, the market and innovation and everything, let all that happen and would probably be in a pretty good place by the end of the 20th century. But if we urgently dismantle our current energy infrastructure and replace it with wind and solar, we're setting ourselves up for um, disaster and reversing human progress in the 21st century, which is not where we will want to go. It's very enlightening that you drew some parallels between the scientific debate regarding climate change and the scientific debate related to the COVID pandemic. In your interviews, in your book, In your view, what are the similarities and how do we need to improve scientific method and discourse? Is it okay to change your mind as a scientist when presented with new evidence and data that doesn't support your previously held position? Is it okay to have a disagreement in science and challenge a consensus? I mean, if you look at history, what I see is that how we progressed in science where people challenge the established consensus and beliefs. So what's going on? And why are we doing science differently nowadays? Okay, it's the job of the scientists to critically evaluate evidence, to 
always question our assumptions and reevaluate our conclusions. I mean, that's the job of a scientist. I mean, skepticism is one of the primary defining attributes of science. Always challenge. We'll take no one's word for it. I mean, this is what science should be doing. This became perverted um, by the IPCC um, early on, you know, in the 1990s when they decided to take a consensus approach. I mean, there's lots of uncertainty and lots of disagreement, but they were forcing this into a consensus. And the way they did this was by carefully selecting their authors <laughs> to be of a certain mindset and getting them in the room and, <clears throat> you know, with instructions from above, you know, letting them know how this should play out. Um, so that this is a manufactured consensus. And, and it's, it's sort of speaking consensus to power. They, they felt that this was a way of managing all these uncertainties by just declaring a consensus. And then this is what can then drive the policy making. Well, that's a very extremely dangerous approach for complex, wicked problems like um, climate science. Now, going on to COVID, I mean, I was fascinated by the whole COVID thing for several reasons, well, apart from <laughs> writing the book during the, the period. Uh, had like maybe 20 blog posts about COVID on my blog, um, you know, trying to sort through all this. And it, it, I was just fascinated by the whole issue. But speaking to the issue of consensus, um, all of this played out. You see all the social and political dynamics in the climate debate that have evolved over decades. You could see this playing out in the COVID situation on time scale of a few years, but, but the, the same dynamics are going on. So, so take the origins of COVID. In spring of 2020, when we were just, you know, figuring out what was going on, there were two articles published in, you know, leading scientific journals, with groups of epidemiologists and whatever, declaring a consensus that the COVID virus was natural origins and that people who were claiming all this stuff about, you know, escape from the lab in, in Wuhan and human engineered stuff that was um, conspiracy theory, it was anti-science and on and on it went. And, you know, that this consent and, and people were canceled from social media for suggesting otherwise, the few people lost their jobs. Um, it was, you know, pretty scary stuff. And, um, you know, within a year, well, about a year later, um, a couple of journalists were doing some detective words and realized that the people who signed and, and implemented that, you know, these consensus articles were actually um, participating and funding the research in Wuhan. And they were scared to death that this was going to be uncovered that they actually had a link to all this. And this involves Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins, you know, two big honchos in the U.S. government on the health issue. And, you know, they figured, and so, so, so this fell apart, you know, almost immediately once these two journalists published their articles and everybody said, well, of course, we, we, we all knew this, but we were all afraid to say anything because we didn't want to get canceled. But, you know, this is just absolutely a shameful 
example, yeah. shameful example. Yeah. The, the, the other interesting parallel with COVID and climate change, in, in my opinion, is that we were trying to control this. We're trying to control the pandemic, trying to control the climate. And it's, it's futile. Okay, when you have an extremely global, complex system with all sorts of systemic risks, you cannot control these things. The best you can do is try to better understand them and manage the impacts. You're not going to control a global pandemic, and you're not going to control um, the global climate. So, you know, both of these, we're trying to control the situation that was uncontrollable, and they were trying to do it in a global sense, you know, UN lockdown. Um, in both situations. So, I mean, those are two of the, I think, bigger parallels yeah. between um, yeah. COVID and climate change issue. Sure. I mean, here I've got this page from your book, and you've written here that you're, I'm quoting here, uncertainty and disagreement can be part of the decision-making process, right? You're Obviously, you're talking about um, the, the climate uh, um, debate here, but we can apply that to COVID or pandemics or other issues, sociopolitical and scientific issues that uncertainty and disagreements, you know, um, should be considered as part of the decision. Yeah, this is useful information. Yeah, this is useful information. Yeah. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to create a consensus. The fact that there is disagreement. Yeah. Okay. The fact that there's uncertainty, these are key factors to take into account. Absolutely. Right. Even during COVID, some of the highly respected scientists and expert individuals who didn't agree with the dominant narrative and supported the, the policies paid a high price. Their careers were destroyed, they were cancelled from social media, and their reputations were undermined. And I'm not talking about any scientists. I'm talking about individuals who are highly respected and well-published scientists who, who have dedicated their lives to science. Just like them, you have also paid a high price. Any regrets? And also, any advice for uh, your colleagues considering coming out as, as disagreeing with the dominant narrative and young scientists in a, in, who are in a similar situation? Well, circa 2010, when it became apparent to me that what I was saying was extremely unpopular and that I could be getting myself in deep trouble, I mean, I made a call that you know, whatever happens. I was, after all, I was tenured, but that's really no protection. <laughs> They're getting rid of ten, tenured people anyways. Um, and I was senior enough, you know, my mortgage was paid off. My daughter was through college. It was an adult. You know, my finances were fairly settled. Um, and I had a company also that was sort of a fallback source of income. I said, so whatever happens, if I have to leave the university, I can afford to. And I recognize that not everybody is in that position. So a, a lot of the people that are speaking out as skeptics about the climate change are, you know, recently retired people. <laughs> they no longer uh, rely on their university salary. Mm. Um, so, but the point is, I don't regret it. It's absolutely liberating. When I left the university, I can now do whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. Uh, the work with my company is absolutely fascinating where I'm helping clients 
um, solve real-world problems that involve weather and climate-related risk. Um, you know, I have my blog and my book, and I'm engaging with people all over the world, like in this podcast, mm. and I'm having the time of my life. So I don't regret for a minute. But, you know, it's a very sad state of affairs when people suffer consequences for doing their job as scientists. And, you know, if you work for like a government lab or something like that, my advice is to keep your mouth shut. I mean, <laughs> there will be consequences. If you're in a university, be very, very careful, <laughs> especially, you know, with public statements. Um, you know, just be very careful. And there are some institutions that are more tolerant than others, but you just have to be very careful. It's a, it's a very sad state of affairs that the only people who can afford to speak out yeah. in terms of their professional career are the older, more senior people and the people who don't really care if they, you know, have to leave their jobs. So I, I wish I had a better... Um, but, but there are other options outside the university and government labs in the private sector, in advocacy groups, think tanks. So if, if you're interested in going that direction, be prepared <laughs> to take a look at private sector and non-governmental organizations for your employment opportunities. So I think it's a lot more open and honest in the private sector, frankly. So w would you do that again, what you did? Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, my, my personal and professional integrity wouldn't allow me to do otherwise. Remarkable, Judith. So what are you up to these days? Um, I mean, you mentioned your own business. What is it about? Who are your clients? Where are they based? So do you want to tell us a bit more about that? All right. Well, um, my company is Climate Forecast Applications Network, or CFAN for short, and started this in 2006. And, you know, after I left university, then I went full time and really tried to, you know, work to spin up the activity. But what we do is we provide advanced uh, weather forecast information and also climate scenarios and climate impact assessments. Um, our clients are mostly in the energy and the insurance sector. And right now, it's, we're in the Atlantic hurricane season, and so that's keeping me very busy, even when nothing's happening. Right. Right now, they want to know what's going to happen in the future, and so I have to read the tea leaf. Uh, and we also have um, we have clients all over the world. Um, most continents, Australia, Asia, Europe, um, of course, North America. Um, we have, we do, we work with some companies doing precision agriculture, supporting farmers in India and Pakistan. Um, we're working with companies who are trying to set up crop insurance in developing countries. So we do a lot of work um, to help support developing countries in addition to working with big, you know, corporate insurance and financial companies and things like that. Um, also work with um, local um, states and um, 
cities to help them understand and figure out their climate risk and how they should be adapting. Um, we work, a focus is on extreme weather events and climate extremes. So that's sort of the niche that separates my company from other companies who are in the weather and climate service space. And in the climate space, we rely very little on the global climate models. Rather, we've developed sort of a network-based um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, climate dynamics-based approach to look at regional climate variability and change. So that's what my company does. It keeps me quite busy. Um, and I still engage quite a bit with the public, you know, through my blog and on Twitter. Uh, if you're on Twitter, I'm at CurryJA. My blog is JudithCurry.com. Um, come visit and join the conversation. Um, I'm doing a lot of interviews lately, trying to working to promote my book, um, which um, I just love getting people's reactions. And I have to say it's interesting when I've done so many podcasts and interviews, and every interview is really different in terms of the interviewer is picking up on different things to be interested in and focused on. So I, I find that really fascinating. And um, so I'm not reciting the same things in every interview. You are, it asks really different questions. That's, but it makes it... How did you find this interview different? Or did you find it different in any way? Well, um, the questions about COVID and the question of advice for young for scientists doing that. I mean, though, and, and also asking me, I like the question where you asked me about, you know, the assumptions, you know, what do I disagree with? You know, and I thought that was a very, very good way of introducing, you know, what, what this is all about here. So, you know, these were questions that I haven't been asked before. Aubrey, good to know that. Any chance for you to go into politics? I mean, you have conviction and integrity, which are sort of in short supply these days among our politicians. Would you consider going into politics? Oh, not at all. Um, <laughs> you know, I have what I regard to be as an idyllic life here in I'm... Reno, Nevada. It's a semi-rural area. I have, you know land, a creek running through. We have chickens and garden and fruit orchard. And, you know, I just love my life here. I don't want to move anywhere else. I don't even travel very much. So, you know, I live in Zoom world. <laughs> you know, engaging with people over the internet and over Zoom. Um, I don't have, you know, I really, I started giving interviews. So I knew the book was coming out last October. And I said, I need to just get to get used to talking about the book, to talking about talking to people, you know, in a fluent way. And when I go back and look at some of my interviews from October, I said, oh my gosh, I'm really glad I started practicing early because I'm not a natural gregarious communicator. Um, so it, it's just not, I'm just not my personality type. I'm happy to provide advice to politicians <laughs> should they choose to contact me <laughs> but I don't have the patience um, and I really like to do my own thing I don't join organizations I don't sign petitions I really you know my, my independence 
has been hard won. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm going to keep it that way. That's great, Judith. And it was a pleasure talking to you. I loved your vibrant personality and convincing arguments. You're a real inspiration. And, and I have learned a lot by reading your book and talking to you. And I wish you all the best with the business and the book. So folks, that was my conversation with Dr. Judith Curry. I hope you find the discussion valuable. Feel free to share and send me your feedback. I will speak with you again next time with another interesting guest. So bye for now.